your scripture and with you tonight. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. All right, yeah, so we're experienced. Became what you believed. Now, I don't know what all of your experiences are. We were talking earlier about tent revivals, right? So I've been to a few tent revivals. I've preached at a couple tent revivals. And, you know, there's some ideologies about what happens in tent revivals. If you grew up, you know, different than that, you may not have experienced it. But we all have these experiences. Now, sometimes experiences can be really, really good. So, you know, you maybe take a trip and you experience something or, you know, you experience, you know, whatever may happen in life. And it could be a positive thing. It can be really good. And sometimes experiences can really drive us in the opposite direction, that we would, we would go the opposite way, that we would say, because of what I have experienced, um, I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. And so we would go the complete opposite way. But suffice it to say, experience drives everything. Now, there's things in your heart that you believe to be true. Now, experience had a lot to do with that, but there's things that you believe to be true. And so no matter what may happen, you have these beliefs that take place in your heart. And then as we grow in who God wants us to be, what happens is our experiences and our beliefs begin to be challenged, right? As Baptists, so let's look corporately. There's, as Baptists, there's something that, you know, the reason I'm a Baptist is because I believe that the Baptists believe the closest to what I understand Scripture to say. All right? I don't know what for you, but that's for me. All right? So that's why I choose to be a Baptist. But there's something that we're misunderstanding. How do I know that? Because we're not perfect. Okay? And so there's something that we believe. And so as, as we grow, our belief system begins to change. So, you know, we talk about, I talk about legalism a lot, and so that is a belief system. But as you grow, that begins to change as you experience the grace of God, right? And so if you've ever been exposed to legalism, and then you were exposed to grace, it's like a child who gets ice cream for the first time. You're like, I don't want any more milk. I want the good stuff. Give me the sugar and the candy, right? And so <clears throat> it's the same thing with us as we're exposed to truth and the reality of truth, our beliefs begin to change. Now, what happens without the existence of true doctrine or, or good belief system is that experience will drive our belief system. And what experience will do is it'll say, well, that didn't work, and so I intend on doing this the next time. Or experience will say, you know, fill in the blank, and then so I want to I have a better intention. And so we have good intentions then to start doing something. So the first blank here tonight on your handout is that the beliefs or true beliefs that we have, not our good intentions, well, those are the things that ultimately drive our behavior. What you actually believe to be true, not what you intend to be true or that you intend to have, and that is ultimately what drives your behavior. That's what drives my behavior. And so as we think about this, well, it's the things that we believe to be true about God. Those are the things that drive how we behave. So, for instance, you're here tonight, very simple example. So your behavior, your belief system is 
uh, that you need to be recharged or that you need to gather together according to Hebrews 10, 25. So you want to obey Scripture. There's a lot of reasons why that may be true. But you, because you believe that to be true, you're here tonight, right? For most of you, probably you've been baptized. And so why did you do that? Well, because Scripture teaches that. Repent and be baptized. And so because of obedience, you believe that to be true. And so you acted that out in your real life. And so ultimately, this will shape how we experience God in our lives. It'll shape how we experience God. So the things that you believe to be true shape how you experience God. Now, a lot of that, and, and you know, we've talked about this in different ways in previous uh, sermon series that we've had, but a lot of that comes to with how you were raised, right? So if you had a very abusive father or an absent father or a strict father, then guess what? That's how you think God is. And that's how you're going to approach God, even if you don't want to approach God that way. That's how subconsciously you're going to approach God. And so the things that we believe to be true will ultimately shape our experience. And so if I fail and I make a mistake, well, then I'm going to view God as a very get-you type God, you know, someone who's very authoritative that, uh, you know, is going to look for opportunities to, to get me, so to speak. But as we've thought about this, and it is so amazing how God has done this. So for the last several weeks, Pastor Tony and I and Pastor Brian, we've been having an ongoing conversation about some of these things. And so literally for over, you know, probably a couple months we've been talking about this. And then as we kind of move towards this sermon series, a lot of this stuff answers some of the things that we've been having discussions about. And the big thing that I want to drive home tonight that we're going to talk about for most of our time is this question right here. Is there a disconnect between your thinking about God and your experience with God? Is there a disconnect between your thinking about God and your experience with God? Right? We all have these experiences in our life. And that experience helped to build our belief system, which ultimately shaped our behavior. And so what happened then is we began to think about those things and what we thought or believed to be true, and we processed it mentally. And so, but what's happened is, and, and, and I would suggest to you that this is probably true for a lot of you in the room, maybe most of you in the room, is that you either lean in the experience camp of God or in the intellectual camp of God. All right? So... I know a lot of people like to have, you know, big, deep theological conversations. That's the thinkers, okay? That you, everything you process, well, you know, i got to think that through. Well, I, I don't know. I've got to process that. Uh, I've got to think more about it. I've got to study. I've got to seek more information. It's the thinker that we say, well, what does that look like as far as me processing this rationally? So you have the camp of the thinkers, and then you have those that are the experienced type. You know, on a personality scale, they may be more carefree because they experience God, and so they feel more of what God wants them to do or what God is saying to them. And so it's more of a, a feeling or an experiential type uh, fellowship. And there tends to be two sides of the spectrum. As a matter of fact, denominationally, um, you have uh, maybe on one side would be 
uh, the more liturgical, you know, more structured, uh, the deeper thinker, uh, Presbyterian maybe would be on one side. And then on the other side would be the more charismatic, maybe the non-denominational, if you will. Those are very general explanations. But for the most part, you see what I'm saying, that, that there's someone on one side that really analyzes everything and really thinks through and digs in and, you know, doesn't make, you know, the behavior doesn't form until it makes sense or it's logical. That's the thinker side. And then on the other side, you've got the experiential side to where, well, this is what I feel like God's calling me to do. Or here, I, I sense the uh, presence of God. It's more of a feeler type. Now, there's, there's good and bad to both sides, and we'll talk about some of that tonight. But the reason all this came up is I believe a lot of people lead with the thinking side. That they say, well, what makes sense? Well, here's what I think is true. And we live in an age to where information is unlimited. You can know anything that you want to know about anything. You can be a scholar, literally, on anything you want to be a scholar on. If you want to know uh, how to become a plumber, well, pull up YouTube. If you want to figure out how to build something, pull up the Internet. If you want to read information about World War II or you want to figure out what happened in the Civil War or where did they sign the Declaration of Independence, anything that you want to know, you can know right now. The original language of Scripture, you want to know the Greek or you want to know the Hebrew or you want to know the different versions of that or anything that you want to know. What used to be something that you would study for, if you will, now anybody can know anything at any time. And so we've become this very cerebral, intellectual society, almost like the Athens, if you, the Athenians, if you think about it, with Paul in Acts chapter 17. And so we've become these thinkers, and so we, we rationalize everything. And what happens is, a lot of times, the, the experience of God stops here, okay? It stops here. And we began to think about the things of God. We began to rationalize the things of God. And we lead our lives through our minds. I know a lot of people who do this. That we lead our minds, we lead our lives through our minds. And if it, if it doesn't work up here, it never makes it to down here. You see, the question is, what in your life, you know, if we talk about this disconnect between thinking and experience, when in your life do you follow the passions of your heart? without rationalizing through your mind. Now, there are some ways we're going to talk about this. But so many times, everything is only predicated on what do I think about it? What do others think about it? Right? What's the consensus? Thinking. And we process God through our minds. And so I want to challenge that tonight as we begin. You see, it's this gap between the life of your mind and the life of your heart. The life of your mind and the life of your heart. You know, of course, it'd be fair to say that everybody in the room today knows more than they've ever known. That's fair to say. And tomorrow, and you know, we've got, uh, we can study again anything that we want to study. And so what happens, I think, is that there, be, the, there comes, becomes this, this log jam or this clog in the filter, if you will, uh, of the funnel of our life that we process everything through our lens of our eyes and through our minds. And as we're processing that, it becomes circular up here. 
And we begin to operate in a cerebral manner, and we never allow the passions of our heart and the things of which seat the things of God ever are affected by. Right? Have you ever, when's the last time you did something passionately? I'm a very, very passionate person. And so, you know, sometimes I have to dial back my passions, right? And I, I have to pull the, the rein back. But I believe if I'm, if I'm going to be wrong, I'm going to be wrong on the side of passion. But that doesn't mean that my mind doesn't get in the way. And I think a lot of people struggle on the mental side uh, because they overthink things. And so they begin to process things rationally, and you can't rationalize the things of God. And then there becomes this struggle, this tug of war between what is experience, can I experience it, what does that look like, versus is that rational. You see, there's a progression from childhood. I, I get to work in Kingdom Kids, and uh, I love to do that and, you know, spend time. I get to teach the fifth and sixth graders, and uh, so we do Bible story every, every time I'm over there to serve, and so it's exciting because you never know what kids are going to say, right? You got kids. Now, in fifth and sixth grade, this is how it's been working here lately, the boys sit on one couch and the girls sit on another couch. And if a girl gets on a boy couch or a boy gets on a girl couch, well, we got problems, right? And so I'll just sit on the floor, right? That's what, and so I have to come in and say, well, hang on just a second. What if we move these boys over, right? And so I'm trying to figure out how we're going to get one boy, you know, to, to, to figure all this out. Because in childhood, guess what? It, nobody's thinking about that. Kids aren't sitting around rationalizing. They're leading with what? With desires, they're leading with desire. Even through teenage, they're leading with desires. And we, lead, we tend as children to lead with passion through desires, things that we want. You know, we, you see, there was, we were shopping the other day, and there was a little girl running through the store. She was probably, I don't know, three or four years old, and she was losing her mind. Because why? Because she wanted a toy. Desire, right? It's a desire. And she wasn't thinking, you know, I really look pretty dumb running through the store screaming. And she wasn't thinking, I'm probably going to get a spanking when I get home for this. She was thinking, I want a toy, and I want it now. And so everything was focused on that one thing of desire. I want to lead with my passion or my desire. But what happens is from childhood, screaming in the store because I want a toy, moving into adulthood, we progressively become more rational in our behavior. We become more rational. And the things that we used to do, well, we don't do those things anymore. Not much excites us anymore. Have you noticed that? The older that you get, the more callous to desire and passion and excitement you become. And then you begin to operate rationally. And you fail to operate out of desire or passion. The older we get, the more we operate from our minds. What makes sense? What will other people think? What's logical? And so we began to follow that belief system and that pattern, if you will. And then what happens is, well, then we apply that metric. Well, it worked, you know, with my college education, and it worked with, uh, you know, me restraining myself in a tense situation. So if I don't act emotionally or through desires, if I only act intellectually, well, that's working pretty good for me. So what happens is then we say, well, if it works good socially or intellectually, you know, in, in knowledge, then it's got to work spiritually. 
And so we take that same metric and we apply it to God. And we begin to approach God intellectually. And we begin to wrestle with our beliefs intellectually. Right? This is what happens. And we begin to rationalize what makes sense. And how is it possible that all of those plagues happened in Egypt? I just don't. I, I'm not. Did, did that happen? Did, so, wait a minute. So, you're saying that Jesus actually, he walked on water? Three days in a well. That, not, not three days in a well. Now, that doesn't make any sense. There has to be a reasonable explanation for this. And those are just a couple of examples. Now, you drill into your own life and you say, wait a minute, God. My vacation time for a mission trip? No, that doesn't make any sense. You want me to give of myself beyond? You know, Jesus says, you know, if you go a mile, go two miles, or someone asks uh, for a cloak, give, you know, so he, he talks about going beyond. He say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense for me to do that. And we rationalize, it. we rationalize it. And so here's where people get in trouble with their salvation is they struggle intellectually with salvation. Now, hopefully this doesn't apply to a lot of you, but if you've ever had any experience with legalism, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Is because in legalism, it says what? You got to know the time. You got to know the date. I mean, look, if you got hit by a bus, you're going to remember that, right? And so if I get, uh, if I'm redeemed by the creator of the universe, I'm going to remember. And so legalism says, no, did you say the right thing? Did you really mean what you said? Did you do the right thing? Is your life exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit of God? And, and so all these things roll through your mind, and then you begin to process your salvation intellectually. Now, again, I hope this doesn't apply to most of you, but unfortunately, it probably applies to some of you. Here's where that person will struggle. Very popular verse, Matthew chapter 7. I think it's on your handout, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So what, he starts out, not everyone who says to me. So, oh my goodness, all of a sudden, I'm saying the wrong things. This is how legalist processes all this. See, y'all have a resident in-house legalist expert. I'm giving you all this information for free. So it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so what the legalist says is, did I say the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? What's the will of God for my life? I don't know what the will of God is for my life. Did I marry the right person? Do I have the right career? And so we start rationalizing all these things. On that day, many will say to me, again, something that said, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty wonderful works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Saying the right thing, doing the right thing, right? Am I, am I pleasing to God? And so this is an intellectual game. It's a, it's a rabbit hole that you'll chase, and it's very circular, and it's an intellectual game. And so you begin to think, what does God think about when he thinks about me? Did I say the right thing? Did I do the right thing? And we process all of this intellectually. Did I do the right thing when I committed to follow Jesus? As though saying the right things in some distorted view or doing the right things causes one to be saved. You see, that's not what the Bible teaches. In Matthew chapter 16, this is what the Bible says. 
When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, this is probably one of my favorite parts of Scripture. There's so much in this. But, but he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Okay? So same logic. Who do people say that I am? Remember, many will say to me that day. So Jesus said, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now this is where Jesus basically uh, goes public with Son of God information, right? This is where he's at the Caesarea Philippi, and there's a lot around that. But he says he's declaring uh, to the world and to the enemy, it's me, Son of God right here. All right, so he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, so the disciples responded, well, some say John the Baptist. Wrong. Others say Elijah. Wrong. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. All those are wrong. But guess what Jesus doesn't say? He doesn't say not true, not true, not true, not true. He doesn't say that. He says, who do people say that I am? Why does he ask that question? Why did he phrase it that way? Well, I believe that one of the reasons he said the way he did is because it is not what they say. Listen, it's not what they say, which is processed through the mind. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Okay, so we would all say, all right, that's great, but what is your point? Well, the next word is my point. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And what does he say? For flesh, which is what? It is the saying, okay, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. It was not the saying that caused you to know who Jesus was. It was Jesus who caused you to know who Jesus is. Right, it's Jesus, the Son of God, living, standing before them. He said, it is my Father in heaven who revealed that to you. And so we're rationalizing, thinkers are rationalizing, saying, if I say the right thing, if I do the right thing, if I intellectually approach Jesus and I figure this thing out, then I will be okay with God. And Jesus said, no, it is not that they say I'm John the Baptist or they say I'm Elijah or that they do say that. It is the fact that flesh and blood did not show you who Jesus is. You did not figure God out. That is not how that happened. The flesh, the carnal mind, is not what brought you to Jesus. That did not happen. That is not how you came to know him. You did not figure God out. Look, the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 that there is none who seeks after God. That's you and me. No one. And so your desire to know God was birthed from God drawing himself to, to you. He was taking you and he was drawing you. He was drawing me to himself. God did that. It was him who drew us. It was him who placed the desire inside of our hearts to know him. You don't intellectually approach God. What you do is you approach God through desire that you want to know God more. You want to know more of who this Jesus is. What is this God-shaped vacuum in my heart that I can't feel through my intellect, but I'm still yearning to know more about? That is God drawing you unto himself. And so you realize that there was a void in the passions of your life. That's how you came to know God. Your heart longed for more than what you had experienced. And for that reason, you pursued God. That's how you came to know Jesus. Maybe you didn't know that's how you did it, but that's how you did it. Now, either a lot of you are really wrestling with this, or half of you are asleep right now. 
right? And so what happens is our heart is what leads us. That's how God created you. But then guess what happened? The devil came in and he said, did God really say? Are you processing the things of God in your mind, Eve? Because I think you got them wrong. I don't think that's really what he said, right? Oh, I know that your internal desire is to please God and to pursue God and to follow after God. But listen, Eve, if you'll just process it here and you don't let it get down here, you're going to be okay. And that's what the world tells us. Check a box, do or say the right thing, right? Get, you know, all, uh, you know what? I don't want to go into that, but you get, you know, if you do or say the right thing, then you're good. Instead of pursuing the passions of your heart that God placed inside of you. And so faith, well, it didn't start in your mind. Faith starts in your heart. Faith starts in your heart. In Romans chapter 10, in verse 10, the Bible says, For the heart one believes and is justified, not the mind, the heart. And the mouth one confesses and is saved. So it is the heart that one believes. That's where salvation originates. So Jesus is clearly stating that salvation, the result of our belief system, that's where it begins in our hearts. Now, most people, most people have become so desensitized to this, to, to the passion of leading with their hearts. And so what, what we do is we resolve to respond to life intellectually. We respond with our minds and we say, well, what makes sense? Does it make sense for me to go on a mission trip 5,000 miles from home? Does it make sense for me to participate and saturate with my neighbor? Does it make sense for me to love my neighbor when no one else knows it? Does it make sense for me to pursue the things of God in my life that God has birthed a desire inside of me to pursue? Right? I don't know what those things are. Does that make sense? Well, most of the time, the answer is no, but we desensitize ourselves to those desires, and we only do things that make sense in our minds. We react, we interact with people based on how we think they'll respond. Right? Adults, of all people, it starts in teenage years, but adults of all people, we hate rejection. We hate rejection. Number one fear of most people is doing what I'm doing right now, speaking in front of people, right? <clears throat> Why is that? Well, they may not like the way I look, or they may not like what I have to say, or they may not like the way I act, and so they may respond, they may reject what I have to say, or they may reject. That's why people don't share the gospel. Well, I don't know what my neighbor will say or family member. And so it's, it's rationalized through the mind because we approach it intellectually because we want to presuppose what the response will be. When teenagers date, they don't let anybody know who they like unless they know the other person likes them. You notice, if you're around teenagers, you think back when you were a teenager, you didn't just, you know, I'm in love and I don't care who knows it. No, that's not how that works, right? You, you want to, hey, does he, do you know, do you know if, if she is uh, dating anybody, right? And then well, could you find out if, if, if I were to like her, would she like me back? You know, so, you know, we, we have uh, a 16-year-old and now about to be 13-year-old, so I know how all this game works, right? But so we, we want to we know how they're going to respond, and adults are the same way. 
But here's what happens with adults. Adults play what I like to call mental gymnastics. Mental gymnastics. We have these subtle ways of saying things. We don't actually say what we mean. We say what we want you to do, but not what we mean. I know, it's, it's weird. Mental gymnastics. We say it in a way to get people to respond the way we want them to. Or in a way that we want them to, uh, you know, what the end result we, we desire. But we do it mentally. And so it's this mental gymnastics. By the way, just tell me what you want to tell me. I mean, I'm, I'm a big boy, so just say it. I don't, I don't want to play mind games. Right? And so, But we, we do that. So we try to figure out this mental part. But following Jesus, having passion for the things of God, well, that can't be rationalized. You can't rationalize the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the way of the Lord. And He will give you the desires of your heart. When is the last time you acted on a desire of your heart for God? A desire of your heart for God. And we've, we talked a lot here this evening about uh, salvation. But that's not where it sto- stops. That's where it starts. That God begins to birth these, these desires inside of your heart to do and to accomplish the things, to be a part of the things that he wants you to be a part of. But it cannot be rationalized. And so as I was studying this, I, I, I asked myself the question, do some people approach God the same way based on how they think he will respond? Do we approach God based on how we think he will respond? Well, I'm not going to ask God for that because I don't know if he'll give it to me. Well, I'm not going to participate in this because I don't know what, God is going to say about it, how he will respond. You see, if we think about things that make sense, things that are rationalized, well, there's a lot of things in the Bible that aren't rational. They're not logic. They, they don't make sense, right? It doesn't make sense for a child to be born of a virgin. That doesn't make sense. There's no rationale for that. It doesn't make sense for one man to die for the sins of the world, right? It makes sense for you to die for your sins and me to die for mine. The problem with that is there's no eternity with Jesus if that happens, right? It doesn't make sense for the perfect, as Pastor Tony preached a couple of weeks ago in Corinthians, the teleon, it doesn't make sense for the perfect to interact with the imperfect. That doesn't make sense. That God in His perfection would have anything to do with us. Why would He do that? It doesn't make any sense. None of this makes sense intellectually. But following Jesus is not intellectual. You see, following Jesus, just like faith, comes from the heart. You see, if you want to be saved, well, it starts in your heart, remember? From the heart. To follow Jesus, right? So in your sanctification and your spiritual growth, how does that work? It, it's in your heart. Following Jesus comes from your heart. And so many times in adulthood, we've rationalized this fellowship into being intellectual. Even, unfortunately, I mean, let's be honest, there are some D groups who think that it is information only. That, if, that you've got to read every single drop that you're supposed to read. And you've got to, you've got to learn as much as you possibly can learn. From the very beginning, we've said the goal is not to finish. 
The goal is to be transformed. Matter of fact, I don't, know, I don't even know if I finished a book in the six years we've done them. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I have. But I can tell you this. Our number one goal in my D group is, God, what do you have to say? And God, how do you want us to respond in, in, in response to that? What do you want us to do? Right? We want to be in the presence of God, and we want to respond to the presence of God by us transforming. Not that God would change His will, because that's not how that works, but that God would change my will, that God would transform us. And so it's not this intellectual. I've got to say, God, what are the things that you've desired for me to do? What is it that you want me to pursue in passion, in, in desire? And so I have to respond to that. And so as I began to think about that, I said, you know, Jesus, he gave the answer to this entire, you know, conundrum that we're in. In Matthew 22, this is what he said. They asked him, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? You know, they're trying to trip Jesus up. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said this, Matthew 22, 37. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. He could have said anything he wanted to say there. But he said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Now, I know eventually he said your mind, but he said heart first. He said heart first for a reason. That we would pursue the things of God as we follow Jesus based on God placing those desires inside of our heart. And I'm afraid the modern church today has so suppressed the desires of following Jesus that we only intellectually approach Jesus because of how we think the outside world will respond. Think of the things in which our world does today. Maybe it's said in another way. Think of the things that our church does not do today because of how we think the world will respond to that. Has God changed his mission? No. Has God changed his approach? No. Has God changed what he will accomplish, his purpose? Absolutely not. But our, the way that we interact with that has definitely, definitely changed. And all of a sudden, we've become meek. And we've become submissive to not declaring the truth about the reality of who God is or pursuing the passions of what God has placed in our heart in replacement of rationale, logic. So follow Jesus. You should love him with all of your heart, all of your heart. He said that following him begins by responding to life with your heart. So I want you to think about this. What do you love with all of your heart? What gets you excited? All right, so I mean, I love my family. I'm a family man, all right? So whatever you see me, you're probably going to see some or all of my family. We're, that's what we do. That's how we roll. And so family, I don't have to think, do I want to do something with my kids today? Do I want to speak to my spouse today? I don't think, those things never cross my mind. I think I want to spend time with them. I love them. I desire to be around them. That's a passion of mine. Maybe sports is is a common thing, you know, for guys especially. Hobbies, hunting, fishing, sports, right? And nobody says, hey, what did you think about those those Yankees? You think you're going to love them this year, right? Nobody says that. I was a Cubs fan when the Cubs fan wasn't cool, all right? Uh, You know, everybody was doing the chop in the 90s, and I'm sitting back, and the Cubs are getting beat like a drum every year. 
All right? So, but, but what is, you have these passions for things that you love. I don't know what your passion is, but there's things that, maybe you like food. Maybe there's a place that you get psyched up about going to eat. Or maybe you get psyched up about, about, about doing something or seeing someone in a con. I don't know what, what those things are. But I guarantee you there's things in your life that you're passionate about. Things that you love. Maybe you love your animals. Or, but you, you, you do that. Why? Out of desire. And you don't think about that. You don't rationalize. Does it make sense for me to carry my dog in Walmart? Right? Now, to me, that doesn't make any sense. But to some people, it makes sense. Right? I mean, I... I'm not kidding. This, this, is, this should be a crime. I was driving down 90 the other day. There was a dog walking down 90 on a leash wearing sunglasses. I'm not kidding. Like, you spent money on a sunglass for a dog? There's a problem there. Right? And so if it was you, I don't want to know. Because <laughs> I was so taken back by a dog with sunglasses, I didn't even look at it. It was walking the dog. But, but think about it. these passions that we, we act on these passions in, in so many other areas of our life except for rationalizing God. And we're not passionately pursuing the things of God. You see, no one is ashamed to declare those things out loud. When the Cubs weren't cool, I still like the Cubs. But when we approach God you see, when we approach God intellectually, what happens is we're left wanting more. Because your intellect was never meant to satisfy you. To try to rationalize God was never the plan, and it will never work, and you'll never be satisfied by it. And so it's important for us to think about the things that we are passionate about, the things that we do desire. Is God on the list of things that we want, that we lead by desire in our life? Now, as we think about this, I, I, don't, I want to be clear, and so I don't want you to start going down a trail here that, you know, you start doing crazy things in service or whatever. I mean, if you feel like you need to do that, knock yourself out. But, um, you know, that we become some emotional society. That's not what I'm saying. A lot of times, desire and passion is misconstrued with emotion. And we say, well, you know, if I live by my passions... I may be mischaracterized as being emotional, right? That I would be too emotional, that I, that I would feel the experience of God too much. So I mentioned at the beginning about uh, the thinkers and, and the uh, feelers. Well, in one camp you have the thinkers. Those are those who believe God is a puzzle to be figured out. Maybe this is you. You believe God is a puzzle to be figured out. And you look down upon those who lead with their passions and their emotions. You say, oh, well, they don't, they don't have control of themselves. They don't have control of their emotions. Right? Maybe, you know, when's the last, when's the last time you saw somebody uh, cry during the music worship service at our church? I mean, do people not do that anymore? You know, there's, there's some people in our congregation who express worship uh, through raising of their hands. Like, there's a couple of songs that when they came out, like 10,000 Reasons. I remember when that song, you know, became real popular. We were in Brazil, and uh, I remember that song coming on. I couldn't sing that whole song. Like, I just became so emotional of thinking. And, and on that day, when we stand before God, you know, the last verse, I remember thinking, man, like, that is just such an emotional moment. 
Or when Casting Crowns uh, East to West came out. And, you know, God has separated our sins as far as the East has from the West. And from a legalist, uh, remembering, I remember that, I mean, it was years and years and years ago, but I remember thinking, is that what grace is? Right, there's these, the King of Kings, we've sang that most here recently uh, in church, and, and that song, King of Kings, that we sing. And just to think through that, how God came down to us and to acknowledge, Hosanna is another song for me. I love Hosanna. Right, so, so biblical. But those moments where our hearts just explode with this yearning and this desire to know more of God and to be more in the presence of God. This message tonight is very similar to that feeling for me of this, just this desire to express this, but more so for me to personally experience more of this. And so these people who, they think God's this puzzle and that they look down on people who maybe lead with their emotions or their passions. These, these thinkers sometimes are people who focus more on doctrine than on uh, deliverance. Right? You, I, I think about this a lot. When I think about this, this topic, I think about David where David said when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought in and uh, his wife was like, hey, uh, you're the king and you probably should be a little more... And don't let people look at you like that, David. And what did he say? He said, I will become even more undignified than this. When is the last time you said that about God? I will become even more undignified than this for God. But we say the opposite. I've got to be more dignified. Right? That's what we say. I've got to become more dignified. And so the thinkers, if you will, not every one of them, but, but they focus more on doctrine instead of deliverance. A lot of people need, need to be delivered from themselves. Uh, focus on songs instead of the Savior that we're singing the songs to. Right? I have my opinions, but they're mine. By the way, I'm an expert on my opinion. And you're an expert on your opinion. But that doesn't mean everybody else shares your opinion. So if you like the songs or you don't, that's preference, right? That's preference. And so we, we focus on, well, no, it's got to be the way that I want it to be. Or how about this? We focus on the words instead of living in wonder of who God is. Oh, I can't believe that was said. Or I can't believe this was said. I just don't like the words to that. Well, if you started removing things that you didn't like, you'd probably have about half your Bible left, right? I mean, right? It's true. So the question is, for the thinker, well, what value is learning, according to Anthony? He says, what value is learning if it doesn't turn to love? Right? What's the value of learning if it doesn't turn to love? That if you don't allow the incarnation of that information to bleed out into everyday life, well, there's a problem. The thinker, right? The ivory tower conversation. So you got the thinkers. On the other hand, you have the feelers, okay? These are the the people that, you know, are more emotional and they're more engaged in their emotions. And so they're often characterized as charismatic. And so these are people that, that sense the presence of God, right? These are people that uh, are more in tune with the emotional side. Uh, and, and some may be more than others. So, you know, I'm not saying there's a, a right zone there, but, but they're emotional. I would characterize myself as 
probably somewhere in the middle. Some, I mean, I tend to vary, in, you know, depending on the situation. You know, sometimes I may tend to be more emotional, uh, and sometimes I may tend to be more intellectual. So I can relate to both sides, right? And so as, as the emotional, the, the, uh, the feeler, well, you know, you can sense the presence of God more, right? You can, you can sense the, uh, the calling of God more, that God is, is drawing you. And, and you don't have to say, eh, I'm going to have to think about that one. You're not trying to rationalize it up here. You know God's calling you and you respond to it. There's some discernment involved in that, but you know God's calling you to that. So, well, if we say, well, what's the value of learning if it doesn't turn to love? Well, the question for the, uh, for the feeler is, well, what is the value of passion if it's misdirected? So, I hear you, thinker, okay? I know you're saying, hey, we can't let the passions, you know, run rampant. We got to have some control. There's got to be some fences. I, I agree. So, what's the value of passion if it's misdirected? That's true. It is true. And so, the question then is this. Do we have to choose? Do we have to choose between engaging our emotions versus engaging our minds? After all, Jesus did say, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. Okay? So it's not that he doesn't want us to think. He gave us a brain to think. So the question is, do we have to choose? Are the feelers, are they afraid of the thinkers? Because the thinkers are often callous to compassion. And unfortunately, sometimes the thinkers may even weaponize Theology. If you're a thinker, you should ponder on that question there. The other hand is, well, are thinkers afraid to experience God from their heart? Are they afraid to be led by their desires? Are you willing to become even more undignified than this for God? What if the answer lies within not how we have experienced God, right? Our beliefs shape our behavior. What if the answer lies not in how you have experienced God, but in how God desires for us to experience Him, right? How God desires it. Because unfortunately, probably most of us have a tainted view of what that actually means. You see, when we think about who God is, I think what we've done is we've humanized God. That we've understood God and interacted with God and we've experienced God in a way that we understand and that makes sense to us. And to be fair, it's the only context that we have, right? I've only been around humans. I've never met any aliens. If I have, I didn't know it. And so I don't have any other experience. So I, I just have to know how to relate to humans. But you see, when you actually experience God, and many of you in the room, you know, saved, you know what I'm talking about, there's this sense of overwhelming awe, right? That's what happened when you met God. And when God does things, it often blows your mind, right? When God does things, things that no one else knows about, where God moves, and there's so many times this happened in my life. You know, think about, think about it uh, 
physically in your life. Think about something that you're just in awe of. Can you think of something that is just shocking to you, amazing to you, something that's incredible, something that's breathtaking? Maybe you've, <clears throat> you've seen a scenery. Maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or Socher, you know, and you've seen amazing things, right? You've seen amazing things. Uh, so I had a chance to go to Rome. I've shared parts of this story uh, before, but years ago I went to Rome, and I, really everything there is, especially from a biblical worldview, is amazing, amazing. Uh, we went to Peter's, uh, where Peter was held in prison, which is amazing. I think it's Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 12. Um, so we, we saw some of that, but I remember we went into, this is in the Vatican, we went to... Uh, to St. Peter's Basilica, which is where Peter, uh, where Paul, let's see, where Peter's actually buried. So I remember going into the Basilica for the first time, and it's astonishing. I mean, I can't even do justice to describing it. I remember walking into that building and just looking up and just I mean, literally, we stood at the entrance forever, it seemed, just taking in the magnitude and the decor and just everything. I mean, literally everything is covered in gold. It has to be worth trillions and trillions of dollars. It is unbelievable. I mean, I can't, I thought about it. I should show a picture. It would do nothing to help you. I mean, just standing there and looking at it, it was just it was unbelievable. It's the most impressive building I've ever been in. And so, you know, we think about these physical things, things that we stand in awe of, right? And we say, wow, that's incredible. And then we ask ourselves the question, is that my experience of God? It says we've talking about uh, having life abundantly that God desires for us. The question is, have we experienced the wonder of God? You see, how do we move from the intellectual side to the passion or the desire side? Well, it's this right here. It's experiencing the wonder of who God is. By definition, wonder means a, it's astonishment or admiration. Astonishment or admiration. You see, when we encounter the living God. It's like the guys who were on the road to Emmaus after Jesus resurrected. The Bible says they came along with Jesus, with, with the guys they believe. It may have been uh, Jesus' uncle or Joseph's brother. Uh, they're not for sure, but some people believe that. And so, so these two guys are going to Emmaus, and Jesus comes in, and he starts walking with them. You know the story, right? And so Jesus began, you know, they say, hey, you know, what, who are you? What's going on? And, and Jesus never tells them who he is. And he starts to listen to their conversation, and they say, oh, man, you know, this, this Jesus guy, he came. In, and so he tell, they tell Jesus all about what Jesus did. And Jesus starts explaining things to them. And then they get to where they're going, and they invite Jesus in, and he eats with them. And then he leaves, and the Bible says that when they realized it was God, what does it say? It says that their hearts burned within them. That's awe. That's passion. That's wonder. And that you had this experience with God. And now I'm not talking about this, you know, one-time, uh, charismatic, 
only event that, you know, if I, now I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that you become so captivated by who Jesus is that you live in wonderment of following him. That uh, this feeling of awe, that's what it's meant to mark our walk with Jesus. It's not that we would rationalize the things that God does or try to understand, you know, the way that he works, but that simply we we would respond in the only way humanly possible and that we would be in awe of who he is and what he does. You see, children are the experts at this when it comes to experiencing awe. I mean, you can give a kid anything and they're captivated by whatever it may be. There was, we had some small kids at our house the other night, and they, they took a cup and put a, a little bead necklace in it. It was the favorite toy of the night. Now, you give an adult, well, it's Mardi Gras, so maybe it's a bad example, but you give a cup with, full of beads, right? I don't know what you're going to do with it. I'm not going to do anything with it. But, but right, and so it, captivated by something like that. Captivated. Children are the experts. So what, is, what if God's desire for us then is that we would walk with Him progressively growing in the maturity of childlikeness? What if you responded to God like children respond to horses? Just in awe. How is something that majestic and something that powerful and something that massive, and yet I can approach and, and you know, touch his mane? How is that even possible? What if that's what God truly intends for us? Remember, Jesus said that it takes childlike faith. Now, I'm, I didn't say childish faith, childlike faith. That we would experience Jesus as the one who is so far beyond us, yet who created us in his image. You see, when people encountered Jesus in the New Testament, they were captivated by him. And they worshipped him. Or they tried to kill him. There was no middle ground. Since when was there an option for middle ground? Right? Since when was church just a membership instead of a fellowship? When did that happen? You see, when we encounter Jesus, to encounter him means that you make a radical decision one way or the other. That you utterly reject who he is or that you are so captivated that you'll sell everything to follow him. You see, people went to great lengths to be around Jesus. Or they did everything in their power to try and get rid of him. I mean, you see both of those things taking place in our world today. Remove God from everything. Get him out of the school. Get him out of this. Get him out of that. Don't reference God. You know, talk about God. Don't talk about Jesus, right? Any way that we can remove God from the equation. There was no one who glanced in Jesus' direction or approached him in confidence and walked away unimpressed. No one. And so to wrap up here tonight, we get to our last part here. Mark chapter 4. i got to speed up. Mark chapter 4, verse 37. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Now this perishing word here 
It's the same word used in Matthew 2.13 where Herod tried to cut off all the kids when Jesus was born. And so some commentaries, this is interesting, some commentaries believe that this storm had an evil origin and or an everlasting purpose, which is why we see Jesus' response to it in the following verse. Jesus woke up, it says he awoke, and he rebuked, verse 39, the wind, and he said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And so the word rebuked here is used in Mark 1.25, where Jesus rebuked someone who was possessed by a demon and said, be silent and come out of him. Same verbiage here, same verbiage. You see, Jesus is in this storm with these guys. And the enemy, there's this uh, perilous storm that comes up. And, and he's trying to derail anything that God wants to do in the disciples' life. The same could be true about you and me, that the enemy desires. Listen, everything that we've talked about tonight, I could make this next statement and we'd be done. The enemy desires to cut you off from the supernatural. That's what he wants to do. And the way that he wants to do that is to desensitize you to the things of God. To desensitize your heart to the passions of God and only rationalize what God wants you to do. He wants to separate you from experiencing the awe of God in your life. And so in verse 40, Jesus said, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So in previous verses in Mark chapter 4, Jesus had uh, tutored the disciples that, you know, hey, I speak in parables, but I explain things to you guys. And so he had explained to them about his authority, but it still didn't dawn on them that Jesus was the presence of God's authority. And so he said, do you still not have any faith? Why are you so afraid? He's referencing their cowardly fear. And in verse 41, they were filled with great fear again, which doesn't make sense, by the way. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So this fear, they were filled with great fear. This fear is the word that's used to describe an angel encounter. So this uh, reverent fear, if you will, that they had when Jesus calmed the sea. Now here's this great, I thought this was fascinating. A great windstorm that ended in peace caused fear. When did peace cause fear? Have you thought about that? Or said another way, why are they more afraid after the storm than during it? Why are they afraid more after the storm than during it. It's been said that they realized that they had a better chance of taming the power outside of the boat than the one inside the boat. Can we say the same thing about the world today? That we believe that we have a better chance of taming the world beyond us instead of the God inside of us. Can that not be true? Would you not agree with that? You see, is this the God that you experience in your life? Not the one when the wheels are falling off 
and, and everything is, is terrible, that then in awe you approach God? No, I'm talking about in the peace of the moment, that in reverence you approach God because you get to, not because you feel like you have to. The storm is past. Have you rationalized Jesus in your life to the one who only does what is logical? Or do you experience God as the only one more powerful than the storms of life around you? You see, Martin Luther says that our thoughts are too human of God. That we see God just like we understand each other. But Psalm 50 says, these things have I done and I have been silent. You thought that I was like one of you. You see, God is not like us. God doesn't need anything outside of himself to exist. We require everything to exist. He requires nothing to exist. You see, the one by which the wind and the waves obey is the one that makes himself available to you and me that we would respond in wonder and awe. That we would follow him out of desire, not out of logic. You see, he's the one that our hearts desire to experience. He is the one that our minds rationalize as unsafe. Is it possible for you to move past the intellectual version of Jesus and experience the wonder of Jesus? Is that possible? That you would pursue God based on the desire that he places inside of you than based on the logic that you can rationalize. So how do we do it? I didn't want to just encourage you, you know, get you all amped up for awe and, and desire and then walk away. How do you do that? How do, we, how do we start walking towards living in wonder? How do we start walking towards living in awe? Well, because the Word of God is perfect. We have the perfect example. If we just back up two verses, this is what the Bible says. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, so this is right before they were to leave, just what we read. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to Jesus said, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. How do we live in wonder? How do we begin to live in awe and through the desires of God in our life? Well, it's clear as a bell right in front of us. So, number one, how do we do it? Be open to something different. Look, I don't care what happened in the past. Even if what God did in the past doesn't mean it's something He's going to do in the future. How God saved me is not how he drew you to himself, right? We all end at Jesus. Jesus is the only way to the Father, but maybe you got saved at home. Maybe you got saved through a friend. Maybe it was a neighbor. Maybe it was a preacher. Maybe it was a revival. I don't know how that happened. But guess what? You got to be open to that. What, what, if, what if God lays a desire in your heart? Maybe, maybe tonight you're here and you've had a desire in your heart, but you've rationalized not acting on it. Can I suggest tonight that you be open to something different. 
that you be open to whatever it is that God has in store for you. Think about the situation. They've been ministering all day long. They're tired. And Jesus says, hey, um, why don't we get the boats and go to the other side? Now, it's nighttime, okay? You know, they got quite a distance to go. It makes more sense to take a nap, right? Makes more sense to do that. But they didn't. It was late, but they were up for the moment. They left where they were to go where he was taking them. And can I suggest to you tonight that you're probably going to have to leave where you are to go to where God's taking you? That you can't just draw a circle around yourself and say, God, I want you to shock my life right here, right now. You're going to have to move. You're going to have to follow. You're going to have to pursue. So be open to something different. Look, let's be honest. There's a lot of people, maybe it's you, but there's a lot of people that are in a rut of life. And they do the same things every day, every Sunday, sit in the same place, have the same routine, go to the same places, have the same conversations over and over and over and over, which is the opposite of God saying, I make my mercies new every day. Right? You're going to have to be open to something different. Number two, this is very obvious. Number two, take Jesus into your everyday life. If you want God to lead you through desire, if you want to be in wonder of the things that God does, don't reserve him to only Sunday morning. They took Jesus in their boats. Remember, they were fishermen. Something they had done by trade. So you have to take Jesus into every situation. That you have to take Jesus into your social life, and you have to take Jesus into your work life, and you have to take Jesus into your neighborhood, right? If you want to experience the wonder of God, then He's got to go where you go. Look, here, here's something that might help you. What you've got to do is you've got to find Jesus in the routine instead of looking for the routine of Jesus. You've got to find Jesus in the routine. Right? you got to say, look, every day I get up and I go to work. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, God, what do you have in store for me today? God, who do you want me to talk to today? God, you know, what do you, what do you have for me today? Where, where do you want me to be? What do you want me to be a part of? I have operated the last 12, 15 years of my life on one principle. Find out where God's working and go join him. That's what I'm doing. Where's God working at? That's where I want to be. Where's God moving? That's where I want to go. Sometimes I'm late. Sometimes I'm early. But the only thing that matters is that he's there. Find out where God's working and go join him. Take Jesus into your everyday life. And then number three, so be open to something different. Take Jesus into your everyday life. And number three, and we're done, is don't try to change him. Don't change him into what you want him to be. Don't change him into what you think or what you want him to want for you. What, what does it say? It says, leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. That was it. Jesus said, I'm tired. I'm dirty. My 12-year-old got in the car today, and he had uh, had 
uh, garlic in his spaghetti, and he smelled like a vampire. He had like garlic was just dragon breath over into. I'm like, what did you eat today? Right? Jesus is dirty. Right? Jesus has been ministering all day. He's tired. And they said, Jesus, just get in the boat just like you are. Just like you are. Untamable. I have no idea what Jesus is going to do. I have no idea where Jesus is going to lead me. I'm not, I'm not from the coast. I've lived in Virginia following God. I've lived on the coast following God. God, where do you want me to go? What are you, where are you working? What are you doing in my life? Where are you moving so that I can be a part of that? I'm not trying to say, God, why don't you do this in my life? God, will you change this in my life? God, would you work in a way that I like or I desire? I'm just saying, God, where are you working? I want to be a part of that. God, the things that you're doing, I'm in awe of, and I just want to be a part of it. I remember I came in the, we came in the room earlier tonight. There was nobody in here. And there's a song. It's called In the Room. It's an old song, but it, it just talks about, I'm just glad I was in the room. Like all the stories, of the, I don't know what God's doing in your heart. I don't know what God's going to do with this message. But to think about all of the stories and all of the ways that God moves and all the things that He does in the hearts of His people in this room, we ought to leave this saying, man, I'm just glad I was in the room. Like sometimes I leave here so elated and so in awe of who, and just in reverence. And sometimes I leave deflated and thinking, you know, man, you know, all, so many ways that I leave, but I never leave. Listen, I never leave thinking, man, that stunk. Right? Because if I come listening for a person to speak and I miss God speaking, I should have stayed home. I can't pursue God based on what I want Him to be. I just have to let Him be who He is. Because it doesn't matter what I think. I can't change Him. My desire is that He changes me. That those times when I am too emotional, those times when I am too intellectual, don't try to change Him. Look, God's version of Jesus is way better than yours. God's version of Jesus is way better than mine. I don't need to come up with my own concoction of how God ought to move or what He ought to do or how He ought to change things. God's, God's got a perfect version of His Son, and that's all I need to know. God's got a perfect version of His Son. His name is Jesus. That's all you need to know. So can I challenge you to start striving towards more childlikeness in your maturity in Christ? Can I challenge you to be open to something different? That you would participate in things that maybe you haven't participated in before. That you would look for God in places that maybe you haven't looked for God before. But that in all of those things that you would approach God in wonder and in awe because that's the only way to do it. The disciples said, Jesus, just get in the boat. The storm came. Jesus calmed the storm. Peace arrived. And the disciples were in reverential awe of what just happened. They were just glad they were in the boat. So for us, can we start looking at God in a different way? Can we be open to whatever it is that He has for us? 
And don't make him mundane because he's not.